And I've been in the toes of the law twice that summer. I've gotten drunk and gotten arrested for being drunk and disorderly. Fine five dollars or something like that. And it seems that in Vermont at that time, I don't know whether the law is still on the statute books or not, but if you got arrested three times, anyone given years for drunkenness has meant six months in the winter state prison. Well, I was sitting drunk right along. One time I got drunk. And I still don't know exactly how it happened, but I was in my own house, and apparently somebody got out a wire for me. I, I still see yet what I was doing, as far as on my own property. But there's one of the boys, the boy that was constable to the town, was a guy that I'd gone to school with in 1912, the same year that I went to school with Bill Wilson. I forgot to say that I went to a private school in Albany. But this one year, I went up there in Vermont, 1912, in the fall of 1912, to go to that school for one year and then back to my other. And this other boy was John Jackson, who was constable. And I walked uptown the next day. I went up and stood on the store, the steps of the hardware store, the store for the owner of it. This time John drove up and said, sorry, he says, everybody got a warrant for it. I took you down to Bennington, which is a county seat. He took me down to saw the judge. And, uh, said says, be back Monday. Says, well, the store we can do about you. Well, I've gotten ahead of my story, but just before that, I'd say late in July or the first part of August, two men came to see me, two fellows that I had drunk with often. And one of them happened to be the son of this judge. His name is Steve Graves, and he's now living in Paris, France. And the other one was Chef Cornell, and I don't know just where he is. I think he's somewhere in Ohio. And, uh... I had a hangover, of course, and these two guys wandered around. I was out in the back somewhere in the kitchen, I guess. But I remember they came up the back steps. And they uh, started, they, they didn't know exactly how to begin on me, because they remembered me, and I was a lot of fun with me drinking. And I thought I had something on their mind, so I said, well, what, what do you got in your mind? What's, what's cooking? And they said, well, we kind of come to see you, and so we couldn't... Get some idea in your head about something. I said, you mean about my drinking? I said, yeah, you're not getting anywhere. You're, I understand you're in law and all over town. And we just thought of... Well, we just thought of... We got mixed up with a group called the Oxford Group. And we think that you could get help if you'd grown up with it. And they said, uh, you ever think of letting God run your life instead of every pastor trying to run it all the time? And they really talked sense the way I figured it, and it seemed to me that they were just telling me things that I had been taught in my childhood about the right way of living. And I said, well, gee, if these two guys have got something out of this, Maybe there's hope for me because I just about given up hope and I tell you I was willing to quit drinking but I didn't know how. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I didn't know how to do it. So I listened to them and they left me a book 
of his men in the Oxford group. I don't recall the name of that book now. But in it, I could see myself staring out of those pages. Now, the Oxford group, let me explain, was not concentrated on alcohol, alcoholism. It was a spiritual group that was founded by a minister from Pennsylvania named Frank Brooklyn, B-U-C-H-M-A-N. It got its name Oxford Group because Brooklyn got a lot of people interested and they in turn went abroad and they went to England and Oxford University and they got a lot of people interested over there. And from there, they went to South Africa. And they got up quite a big meeting down there. I don't know if it was Cape Town or one of those cities. And the reporters referred to them as the group from Oxford and then damn me and stuck and it had no more to do with the, with the group or its findings and anything in the world. But just like those things happen, that's the name that stuck with it. And it was called the Oxford group. And they were, they were really trying to find something. It was that time in 1929 when the crash had come on Wall Street and the the nation was kind of a low point economically. A lot of people were hopping out of windows in New York, and that's no joke because they were. A lot of them hit those manholes head on from the sturdiest floor. And a lot of people were drinking terribly, and they wanted to find something in this Oxford group. A lot of people came around to it, and of course a good many of them happened to be alcoholics. And don't ever let... It's all think that nobody but an alcoholic can help an alcoholic because there were a lot of men in this group group that were very understanding and had a damn good knowledge of the thinkings of an alcoholic's mind. And I sometimes think that I, I minds are no different than anybody else in this world. We just give in to things that other people do not. Well, anyway, that idea appealed to me. I read the book. And I stayed it up for a few days, and I had started to paint the house, but I had a ladder that was too short, and I couldn't get up to all these places. And I made a deal with a boss painter, and he sent around one of his men with some equipment, and the two finished the house. I didn't touch a drop all that time, but the minute that job was over, sure, I went right back to bottle because I had nothing more to interest me. It was a wet time. And it was then... On that means after the thing in the house that I was picked up and taken to this county judge. There's one thing that sticks in my mind, and it always will, and I knew it was at that time. It may not mean anything to you, it may not get what I mean by it, but as we drove home that afternoon, this constable, John Jackson, left me off at the house that I was living in. And he said, well, I'll be around to get you Monday. This is Friday. And he said, do you remember the judge says be sober? I said, yep, I'll be sober. So I went in the house, and I remembered that down cellar I had about a half a dozen bottles of ale, and I know they're going to be nice and cool. And the one thing I like in this world is Valentine's Day, and that was it. So I went down cellar, and I said to myself, I can't possibly get drunk between now and Monday on six bottles of ale, and I know that nobody in town is going to sell me anymore after they've heard that I, you know, what a small amount of 
I heard about Bill. I haven't seen Bill, I don't believe, for over a year. Although Bill, you see, was born and raised in a town six miles north of this town of Manchester, Vermont, where I used to summer. I also spent quite a few winters there. Uh, and I heard that Bill was in pretty tough shape, drinking bad, and I had been downtown and uh, in Wall Street and seen some of my old friends, one of whom I had Bill's sister-in-law, and he said he was in tough shape, and he said, why don't you give him a ring or telephone? And I said, well, I will, but I want to think this thing out a little. I get myself a pretty good story, a pretty good take to go for him. And I can truthfully say now that I believe that if I, that I went over there, Bill would either go for it, lock, stock, and barrel, or he would have none of it. He wouldn't just play around with it for a little while. I thought that if he put his teeth into it once, he'd stick to it. Because I thought I knew him pretty well. I've been going to school with him and seen him over the years. So I called him up one night. I didn't get Bill, but I got Lois, his wife, and told her what had happened to me that this wants to try to show me something. Well, I don't even sober myself in about possibly six or seven weeks. But I think sometimes the initial effect that we get from a thing is we're more powerful then than we are later on. We get stale. Well, anyway, Lois said, why come over to dinner some night? And then uh, she mentioned the date. I said, fine. So that night I went over about half past five, I guess, in the evening. And, uh, and I rang the bell at 182 Clinton Street. The only person home was an old colored man named Green, who I've known for years. He'd been with the family. And Lois's family, that is. And he said, they're both out. Both Mrs. Wilson and Mr. Wilson and I would come on in. So pretty soon Bill appeared, and uh, he'd been drinking, but he wasn't too bad. And he said hello, and this, that, and the other thing, and he's kind of edging around. And then he made me scoot, he had to go out and get some ice cream, something else for supper, and of course I know what he's going after, I understand. I've done it so many times myself. So, then Lois came in. And there was another girl invited, there was a girl invited because uh, she lived upstairs and had made the place uh, some apartments. So we all sat down at dinner. And Bill's got a little garbled in the book about again across the kitchen table, but it don't make any difference. The idea is there. Now we had dinner and then we all moved upstairs and in those houses and we were back there in the east, most of the living rooms on the second floor. So we moved up on the second floor, and after a little hammering and hawing, Laura said, well, uh, let's hear about yourself. So I started in. I guess they got me wound up, and I guess I started putting in one o'clock in the morning. And I remember Bill, so I walked the subway with her. And I knew that he wasn't going to go for a drink, or if he had a bottle in the house anyway. And on the way over, he put his arms around my shoulder just before I went on the subway. So I don't know what you got, kid, but you got something, and I want to get it. 
Well, he didn't stop drinking right away any more than I had stopped drinking. Back there, that problem when the Oxford group boys came to see me, but the idea was in there, and the idea happened to get in Bill's head. And at that time, I had moved to a mission on 1st Avenue and 23rd Street in New York City. It was run by Calvary Episcopal Church and called Calvary Mission. It was run under the auspices of this Oxford group. It was just a typical so-called Bowery Mission. We had 12 men who were running it, and... Uh, <coughs> We only had available beds for about 35 men, and they were full every night. So, and I was with a man, and about two nights after I'd been over to see Bill, he appeared at the making, just as the meeting was about to start, and I just, he had a guy in tow, and they were both visibly drunk. But not too bad, and long about, there's a great many of them, that was, those meetings there were what's called testimonial meetings. We had a man up on the platform, and uh, he would uh, call on various men in the audience. They'd get up, say what they'd found. Of course, the, most of them were doing it just to get the place to sleep. They called taking a nose off for God to get a flop. That's the way they expressed it. Well, in the midst of all these proceedings, Bill gets up and walks up to the platform, and he's about six feet three, you know, and he means to Exactly the same as 
I can't spell it out. At least how about going to Texas? Well, I said, I don't know about that. Well, he expounded on the virtues of Texas and those good old American ways of living that were still down in these parts of the country. He gave me five dollars and bought me another drink. He said, I'll see you tomorrow night. So he did, and the three of the funds. Of course, I worked him for another five dollars. That's for sure. And a few more drinks. And that was Thursday night. I said, I'm not going to see any more, but the office still holds good. I know that if it hadn't been for AA when 
I got to Texas, I never would have been able to survive. I'm just coming out here alone, I'd have been lost. It was tough enough as it was because I was among strange people, slightly different ways than ours. Uh, it, it was enough evil to get from the Bowery down here in six hours and change yourself all around. But if it hadn't been for those good Texas people and the people in the suburban club, if I hadn't been uh, able to go around there and stay there and skate there for two weeks before I went in the club, a little over two weeks, I walked by one day and started up a steps for us when I went back to the clinic. Almost like a guy going back and hiding under the bed. And I know the several times we said, well, I, know, I heard him talking, man, what are we going to do with this guy? He's going goofy. And then I heard a colored girl that worked there. She's quite an old girl and woman. And she said, don't you worry about that man. He doesn't leave him alone and he's coming out of it. He's sick. And that's just what I was. I was sick. Mentally and physically. I mean, gradually I worked out of it. And then she took over. And then I was able to get around the club and get into the activities. And maybe I got in and went too fast. That was the hottest summer that had been on record in the Texas Weather Bureau. I went down on the ranch and I was well out working the sheep with this man. He put me in as a shoot man. That's kind of rugged work in 95 degree days. And I got mixed up in an oil deal and I sold some insurance stock and every one of them flopped. Insurance company did almost. I'm still struggling to get back on the streets. And I got in another deal on that flop. I was sober a year, and one month after the year was up, I flopped. And that was in October 1954. I had 13 months, and I only had a few days drinking men. And uh, it was over a three-week period, but I got flapped in the county jail for 10 days, and back with Mr. Bill Becker's emporium. I came out and some friends took me in their house and I sobered up. And I haven't had a drink since. This is the end of side one. Please turn Cassette over now and continue to listen on side two. Do not fast forward.